good afternoon. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Jasmine. I am your host. And with me today, I have my friends Matthew and Alyssa. And today is Saturday, November the 19th. You'll be listening to this on Sunday, November the 20th, or on the 21st during the rebroadcast on Monday morning. So Matthew, Alyssa, how are y'all doing? Good. Glad to be here. How are you? How are you both? Um, all things considered, doing okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the weather's gotten nice and chilly. It's feeling like uh, holiday season, so that's nice. I'm enjoying that. Yeah, I really like this weather. It's I I'm I realize I'm not prepared though for the winter. I need to get gloves and a hat and stuff. So like I I think there might be a dissenting opinion here uh, from one of us. This. Jasmine, you're not a huge winter fan, are you? <laughs> well, you know, see, this is what happens when people think they have you pegged. Uh huh. Like, I, 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 I appreciate, I appreciate the changes of the seasons. I do like the heat. I like the sun. But um, you know, I come from the frozen. I come from the land of the ice and snow. You come from the tundra. So. But, you know, I don't, it's not like I enjoy being cold, but I do like feeling like, oh, like the change is coming, it's getting to be like Christmas time. Like that I do enjoy. And I like having like a cozy night inside. I also feel like, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an introvert. Would y'all say I'm an introvert? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think like partially. (laughs) Maybe in half, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the like one of the actual ways that I know that you can measure this is like you think of introversion and extroversion as about how your battery is charged. So like if you're at a party, how do you feel afterwards? Do you feel energized or do you need to go home and recharge? So for me, after a big party around people, I could be talking and social, but then I need to go home and kind of like recharge because I need to be yeah. alone again. I feel like that's how I am. It's like, I do, I like being able to pick and choose when I'm around people. And I do really Mm. like being like, yeah, I'm just inside all day. Or it's like, nobody can. And I feel like when the weather is not good, it's very easy to be like, no, I'm not coming out. Absolutely. True. Because I don't, I don't need to see people. I'm okay not seeing people. (laughs) Yeah, it's I'm getting ready to hibernate. Like I'm very prepared for that season. So, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the holiday season and you know, have it gives you something to look forward to. Like I don't like that it gets dark so early, mm. but at least you know that like after what the winter solstice is going to be a little bit lighter for longer every day until the spring. So, I guess I mean, we're all on the same page then, kind of, sort of. Yeah, my uh, husband and I got an Instapot, and it's like the duo, the air fryer and the pressure cooker. Ooh, That's, yeah. it, it, it's amazing. Yes. <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's like kind of life-changing. It's fantastic. So a lot of soups and stews and stuff can be made. So and it, this is the perfect weather for it, too. So um, on this week's show, after that long intro about the weather and other things, Uh, For the local news, we're going to be talking about uh, how MTA workers are feeling about the increased NYPD presence in the subway system. 
For national news, we're going to be discussing um, a whistleblower revelation about the anti-abortion lobby and its uh, relationship with the Supreme Court. And for the world news story, we're going to be going over a fact-checking article about the claim uh, that is apparently inaccurate about Iran um, sentencing 15,000 protesters to death. And for the local news, Alyssa is going to be discussing our top story. So Alyssa, there you, here you go. You, you got the floor. Okay. Um, thanks, Jasmine. Um, so this You're welcome. Artic- <laughs> this article um, that I am going to be reading from, it's titled New Police Presence in Subway Not Making All MTA Workers Feel Safer. And it's by Jose Martinez. Um, and I got it from this publication that I honestly just heard of today. Uh, it's called The City. <laughs> uh, so I'll I'll just start reading um some of the article and I'll summarize a little bit of it. Um, As a Brooklyn bound C train pulled into the 59th street Columbus circle station during the evening rush earlier this month, subway riders heard one version of an announcement that is now being repeated at many stops along the line. If you have questions, concerns, reports, the NYPD is located at this station. The conductor announced One stop to the south, the conductor weighed in again, saying, we have police available at the station. Those phrases have in recent weeks become increasingly familiar to subway riders as part of a city and state anti-crime push that has significantly increased the public, er, sorry, the police presence on platforms, trains, and in stations throughout, throughout a system grappling with a more than 40% increase in major felonies felonies from last year, according to NYPD statistics. But some train crew members and leaders of the largest union for transit workers say the announcements have been less well received by the conductors who are supposed to recite them over train speakers whenever police officers alert them in advance to their presence. Everybody's got their headphones in, so who's really listening to any of the announcements? Ryan Eversley, a conductor on the queue line, told the city, which was a publication, at the line's 96th Street terminal. It's background noise, if I had to be honest. And then the article just kind of goes into um, uh, how, I guess, Governor Kathy Hochul and um, Mayor Eric Adams in late October rolled out this um this plan or strategy for um, addressing subway crimes. Uh, So the three C's, the cops, cameras, and care strategy. Um, And then another, uh, this is a a writer on one of, on the C train, Elena Rodriguez. Um, She said it may help a little bit as far as making someone on the train think twice if they're planning to do something bad. Um, It did make me feel a little comfortable, but at the same time, you just never know. Um, Transit officials say the the overall safety plan is important to a system whose ridership is still far below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, What we're hearing from our customers is they love knowing that there are cops on the platform. 
both to reassure them that there's a police presence, but also in some cases so they know where to turn if something that concerns them is going on. Um, Tony Utano, uh, who's the president of the Transport Workers Union Local 100, has repeatedly called for more police in the subway. But some union officials who represent train operators and, condu- and conductors say they have heard grumbling from train crew members that the announcements about police can increase dwell time, the amount of time that trains spend in a station while riders load and unload. While union officials said they welcome the addition of police officers in stations and on platforms, they also expressed concern from train crew members that the announcement could the announcements could drive disturbed individuals to violently turn on conductors when they poke their heads out of train car windows at stops. MTA statistics show subway workers have been harassed or assaulted more than 350 times this year. Rodriguez said the bulk of incidents involved conductors being spit on or attacked. Um, Rodriguez said transit workers feel especially vulnerable during the overnight hours when ridership is lower and police patrols drop off. I hear a lot from members that in the evening and the overnight hours, it's not the same police presence. While the NYPD declined to provide the number of officers that are in the subway during overnight hours, a spokesperson said transit bureau cops have conducted more than 430,000 train runs since January. During the same time period, the NYPD said transit and patrol officers have conducted more than 850,000 station inspections. The added number numbers of station inspections and train runs create an omnipresence that riders at all hours can see and feel the spokesperson said um and i the rest of the article it's kind of just like a couple more paragraphs um just essentially uh so like the new york city transit president richard davies said that the mta is basically giving customers what they want so According to him, like um, surveys that they've um, sent out have shown that safety is a top concern. So this so they're asking for more police in stations like they want. And this is kind of essentially what what they're saying or what he's saying that um, subway riders want is more police in stations. Um, So I brought this up um, mostly because I've noticed as well um, that, you know, these announcements are basically a regular thing. And I feel like in the last couple of weeks, it's increased. So like literally every single train at every single station, there's some mention of police being on the platforms. Um, And I've also started to notice them in places where they weren't before. So like, going to target um a couple days ago like there were uh police officers just kind of standing there at the entrance which was kind of unusual um so yeah i'm just kind of um curious like what do you both think have i mean i'm sure you've noticed it as well like because i know there was that kind of that official um strategy of kind of providing more police in the stations i thought this was really interesting that um the workers were saying, or the MTA workers um, were 
thinking that it, it kind of maybe puts a target on them now with with these increased announcements of police. So what do you both think about that article and in general about the police? Mm-hmm. So I uh, was looking at the article. Um, <clears throat> that quote stuck out to me that said it was Richard Davey from the MTA saying the bottom line is that essentially people want more police presence and the survey so i try to find the survey it's a i'm gonna have to look further to find the actual survey but i'm curious to know what they said the top concern was safety but that does not necessarily mean people are asking for more cops Uh, there's a difference between raising a concern uh and addressing said concern um, and yeah, definitely, there is an absolute uptick in the amount of police playing on their phones while they're blocking the doorways or crowding the platforms, um, and they're just not doing anything other than being a threatening presence to us. Um, I, I, I guess I can understand that the some employees are wanting that as like a form of job safety, but it seems I don't think this is the answer. I, I don't know what the answer is but there's a lot of things wrong with the mta right now and i don't think more cops uh taking a lot of taxpayers money to harass them is the answer to this yeah i think it's um it reminds me of this book that i had read it's called locking up our own that traces um the war on drugs basically is focusing on the DC area, like black communities in the DC area where kind of like what Matthew was saying, it's like the community will be asking for a certain number of solutions, but the only thing that actually gets provided is increasing policing. And I feel like this is a similar kind of situation. Like I understand people being, you know, afraid, like there are things that happen that can be really shocking, um, being pushed in front of trains and, you know, this, these random acts of violence, like I don't fault someone for being worried about that. But the, the idea that, you know, the only thing that will actually happen is more cops. And even in what you were reading, Alyssa, it sounds like at the times of day where you would be most concerned about that, there's the least people. But like in the middle of the day when it's mad people everywhere and you're less likely to maybe be targeted, that's when you have this overflow of police. Like, I don't know. It doesn't make me feel any safer. And I know at my stop personally, you see a lot of them just standing around and they'll be bragging about how much they're making in overtime, just like idling, you know. So I really think that that money could be put to better use. Um, So, yeah, I mean, as a daily subway rider, it doesn't make me feel more secure. And I'm not happy that that's where my money is going as a taxpayer. Yeah, and it's like, instead of paying overtime to thousands of cops, invest in housing people. Like, that's the cure to uh, homelessness, is like giving people housing, giving people jobs and money, putting cash in people's hands. The A lot of these cops, and like its data has shown, a lot of these cops that patrol these are, are thuggy, like thuggish gangs in these neighborhoods are not people who live here. They don't police their own communities. They are harassing other communities that Quite honestly, they probably look down upon us as New Yorkers. Like, they think we're the liberal trash who are, like, the scum. 
um, they have a lot of scorn and disdain for the people that they are quote unquote protecting. Um, just like yesterday, I think I saw them escorting someone who looked uh, maybe unhoused and they were escorting them out. I'm like, to what end? Like it's cold outside. The weather is horrible. There are the shelters are in terrible conditions. There are no other means to survive. Um, it's all these tax dollars go to these people, um, and it's it's really ugly. Um, but that's I guess what the mayor wants because he knows what's happening. I guess. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I'm really curious. I agree with you, Matthew, about you know like the the these surveys. This kind of oh, we're looking for, you know, we want to feel more safe, but the way that they interpret that is more police, which again, like it depends on like for a lot of us, like where we feel even more unsafe because there are more police um, on the trains and on the platforms. But I am really curious about these surveys because the article just linked to an NY, a New York post article, which then did not mention the surveys or didn't provide okay. a link. And the post, we all know about the post. Yep. Yeah. So, so I did no, they were rah, 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 Lee Zeldin oh, down. Yeah. Yep. So what these i don't so, i'm curious as well and i I might dig further to find out where these actual survey results are um no no, no. I, I found it so uh i okay. i found where they i uh so the mta did conduct a survey uh quick google search i found it um but what's interesting is i looked through the pdf really quickly of the survey results um and there was what i thought was there was a suggestion that personal safety and security is a concern. There is no finding that suggests the people who took the survey said, we want more cops. What they did was they inferred and said, oh, they're scared on the trains. I know how to fix that. Let's put more cops on the trains, which is not what was being said. They're liars. And they don't, and again, like the, the, uh, to what Jasmine was saying, like the, or in the article too, like the overnight hours or when workers feel more vulnerable there aren't there's no protection around that time or so-called protection so it kind of it's like any overnight job like at those hours you're in you're the increased risk it just increases like exponentially like uh, those overnight workers at the bodegas and stuff there's just a higher chance it's going to happen during those like quiet hours And, you know, we got to move on for the sake of time. But, you know, as the resident COVID crank, I would just like to point out that um, the New York Daily News reported last year in March that up from the beginning of the pandemic up until March of 2021, there were at least 156 transit workers that have died um, since the pandemic started. And... You know, if you look at the post, like they have a recent um, article, this is from last month, and it's like crime has gone up there in 2022, there have been seven killings and it's in the subway. It's like, you know, just, it really makes you question why is it worth all these untold thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars? Like, again, the new the NYPD has a bigger budget than some countries have for their entire military. That's worthwhile. But you have people begging, like, bring a mask mandate back. Because, you know, not for nothing, a lot of cops have died of COVID. 
and a lot of MTA workers have died of COVID. There's been a lot of New Yorkers, our fellow New Yorkers dead of this disease, but people, you know, they want to look at you like you have three heads when you want protections from that. But this is what we get, a bunch of people sitting around, standing around doing jack shit. Like it's, it makes me very upset. And I wish people would, you know, have a more balanced view about what is actually putting you in danger. And it's not the sight of poor people or the sight of Black people or whatever, but that's who's getting the brunt of um, the negative interactions with the cops. So, Two quick points on that. One, you're not a crank. Uh, You are taking accurate COVID measures seriously because it is a disease. More people have died of COVID in 2022, I think, than the previous years. So um, there's that. <clears throat> Two, the, the police force not wearing masks is very indicative of where they stand politically. It's this whole idea of they are an apolitical institution. Bullshit. They're fucking uh, MAGA people. And it shows because they were highly skeptical of COVID. They didn't believe the science and they refused to mask. They were super spreaders during this whole thing because... They were still policing throughout the city and spreading that like crazy. All right, so we're going to move into our first musical break, and we have a song from a local artist for the local story. This is Secret Service by LaCaylee47. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. I must start this campaign off right here. Everything I want at first I fear. I go head first off the diving board. Not only am I the owner, I also treat the whore. That's how you get money like Look around, tell me what you see. I do my step, step, step. Curry pulling up from birthday. Rest looking at me like, damn, you did on provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Matthew with our national news story. Hello, everybody. This is an article that came out on November 19th, 2022. Um, It was last updated at 9.23 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, This is from the New York Times, written by Jody Cantor and Joe Becker. Uh, It is entitled, Former Anti-Abortion Leader Alleges Another Supreme Court Breach. Years before the leaked draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, 
a landmark contraception ruling was disclosed, according to a minister who led a secretive effort to influence justices. As the Supreme Court investigates the extraordinary leak this spring of a draft opinion of the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, a former anti-abortion leader has come forward claiming that another breach occurred in a 2014 landmark case involving contraception and religious rights. In a letter to Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. and in interviews with the New York Times, the Reverend Rob, I want to say Schenck, uh, said he was told the outcome of the 2014 case weeks before it was announced. He used that information to prepare a public relations push record show, and he said that at the last minute, he tipped off the president of Hobby Lobby, a craft store chain owned by Christian evangelicals that was a winning party in the case. Both court decisions were triumphs for conservatives and the religious right. Both majority opinions were written by Justice Samuel A. Alito Jr., but the leak of the draft opinion overturning the constitutional right to abortion was disclosed in the news media by Politico, setting off a national uproar. With Hobby Lobby, according to Mr. Schenck, the outcome was shared with only a handful of advocates. Mr. Schenck's allegation creates an unusual, contentious situation. A minister who spent years at the center of the anti-abortion movement now turned whistleblower. A denial by a sitting justice and an institution that shows little outward sign of getting to the bottom of the recent leak of the abortion ruling, of the abortion ruling, or of following up on Mr. Shank's allegation. The evidence for Mr. Shank's account of the breach has gaps, but in the months of examining Mr. Shank's claims, the Times found a trail of con- contemporaneous emails and conversations that strongly suggested he knew the outcome and the author of the Hobby Lobby decision before it was made public. Mr. Shank, who used to lead an evangelical nonprofit in Washington, said he learned about the Hobby Lobby opinion because he had worked for years to exploit the court's permeability. He gained access through faith, through favors traded with gatekeepers, and through wealthy donors to his organization, abortion opponents, whom he called stealth missionaries. The minister's account comes at a time of rising concerns about the court's legitimacy. A majority of Americans are losing confidence in the institution, polls show, and its approval ratings are are at at a historic low. Critics charge that the court has become increasingly politicized, especially as a new conservative supermajority holds sway. In May, after the draft opinion in the abortion case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, was leaked in what Justice Alito recently called a grave betrayal. The Chief Justice took the unusual steps of ordering an investigation by the Supreme Court's marshal. Two months later, Mr. Shank sent his letter to the Chief Justice Roberts, saying he believed this, his information about the Hobby Lobby case was relevant to the inquiry. He said he has not gotten any response. Um, in early June 2014, an Ohio couple who were Mr. Shank's star donors shared a mail with Justice Alito and his wife, Martha Ann. A day later, Gail Wright, one of the pair, contacted Mr. Schenck, according to an email reviewed by the Times. Quote, Rob, if you want some interesting news, please call me. No emails. End quote, she wrote. Mr. Schenck and Miss Wright told him that the decision would be favorable to Hobby Lobby and that Justice Alito had written the majority opinion. Three weeks later, that's exactly what happened. The court ruled in a 5-4 vote that requiring family-owned corporations to pay for insurance covering contraception violated their religious freedoms. 
the decision would have major implications for birth control access. President Barack Obama's new healthcare law incorporation's ability to claim religious rights. Justice Alito, in a statement issued through the court spokeswoman, denied disclosing the decision. He said that he and his wife shared a casual and purely social relationship with the rights and did not dis- and did not dispute that the two couples ate dinner on June 3, 2014. But the justice said that the allegation that the rights were told the outcome of the decision in the Hobby Lobby case or the authorship of the opinion of the court by me or my wife is completely false. Ms. Ms. Wright, in a phone interview, denied obtaining a pass, denied obtaining or passing along any such information. A representative for Hobby Lobby would not comment beyond sharing Justice Alito's statement. A spokeswoman for the court declined to answer questions about Mr. Shank's account or its investigation. Um, it goes on, and there's a little bit more depth about the background of the Reverend um, and his history of where he kind of took a turn from becoming this anti-abortion advocate to now a pro-abortion um, stance in, on that. Um, the court is pretty illegitimate as it stands in its own, um, but if you two have any thoughts on this story, I don't know if you two had any chance to read up on it. Um, it was out early this morning and kind of what's left of Twitter, RIP, um, was still making some shockwaves. I hadn't um, seen it, like seen the story. Me neither. It's like, I think I saw a couple of tweets about it, but I didn't click on the links and actually read all the way through. But I mean, nothing about this is surprising. I gotta say, you know, like, I think that this is how most of these decisions get made. You know, it's like people are in the pockets of these various corrupt um, extremist organizations. It's just business as usual, but... I hope it's becoming a little bit more known and aware about the power that nine unelected people have on the lives of this country. The citizens of the country is just, like, immeasurable. Um, They are legislating from the bench, as they say. Um, These people are striking down laws that are passed by Congress. And it's like, is that even something that is being addressed it's a major concern when the people are electing representatives to pass bills um by their votes and then that just gets struck down um because some sociopath got to nominate and get multiple judges on the bench that have a far right lean um it's very scary because even as we see in the midterms the democrats lose the house but they hold the senate they hold the presidency even if they are able to pass anything, it's going to go up against the Supreme Court and probably be knocked down. Um, and there's just no fire within the current administration to kind of address this. I remember um, me and one of my good friends, we had went to go see that documentary about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg that came out. I think it was before she passed away. And I remember, like, it was supposed to be some, like, uplifting thing. And I was like, this is actually terrible. Because it kept going over, like, all the times that she was the dissenting opinion in some, like, horrible case that, you know, the wrong side won again. And I'm like, there's nothing encouraging about that. Like, the fact that this institution is treated with the reverence that it is makes absolutely no sense. You know, I feel similarly about like the Constitution in general. Like when you look around the world, like 
it's meant to be a living document. Like other places change their constitutions somewhat regularly to reflect like the modern realities of what's going on, you know, with the population. But people treat it like it's this holy thing and like the people in these positions just cannot be like they're gods or something. And it's so, it's very childish. It's ridiculous. And there was, um, I can't remember, I think her name is Caitlin Greenidge and I follow her on Twitter. And someone had either asked her or she posed the question about like, why do people have the reverence that they do for the Supreme Court. And someone made the excellent point that I think a lot of us around our age or older, there's this narrative that goes up through like the civil rights movement and then it just kind of stops. So it's like in people's minds, like they think of someone like Thurgood Marshall and like a series of like very important groundbreaking like liberal decisions or like more progressive decisions that happened in the 20th century. But then everything that happened after that point, like once he was replaced by, once Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas, who we all know is terrible, like the backwards movement of a lot of these decisions isn't really covered in school or it just doesn't occupy the same space in people's minds. So they don't really get like how, like this is a political institution no matter what they say and it does not automatically go in the right direction just because it's the law or it's the court like people can twist those words around to mean whatever they want it to mean if they have bad intentions yeah i was um the part matthew where you mentioned uh like people lose i forget who exactly but like losing confidence in the court like that's what that kind of made me think of is i like because these people are also like appointed for like a lifetime so there's only like a few of them and it's wild to think that the you know they have like that much power and that much control you know and are able to kind of reverse things and again it's like such a limited I mean it's a small group it's like this inner circle (laughs) um and they have you know like no matter like how much we're saying that oh everything is like they're kind of looking at things objectively like that's not the case like people they're human beings and they have this great amount of power and that's going to influence them like that's going to impact how how they're you know what they're how they're making decisions what they're doing because they have that much power and they know they do so I feel like I don't know it's just kind of wild that these systems are still in place or things are kind of still done like this based on like you said jasmine like these things should be kind of changing with the times like the constitution should be a living document like things need to be updated and (laughs) like i find that like a lot of these things are it just doesn't make any sense that a handful of people have like that much control over an entire country's like existence in a way the lifetime appointments like uh, the article gets into the idea of the supreme court is the one branch that doesn't have a code of uh, ethics most federal judiciaries like have a standard code of ethics that you are bound to the supreme court is policed by their own so they're making the decisions and it's like that's not real it's like it's like 
it's the cops investigating the cops like oh actually we did just fine be like oh no shit (laughs) like of course it's fine but i mean and the point that i think jasmine was making like so much or the reverend whoever was making the point of the idea of like why it's revered so much is like it's also been in such secrecy and shadow like the shadow docket is recently becoming aware um and i've just started following a lot of lawyers and progressive like activists calling for like pulling power away from the supreme court it's only recently because of covid that we are hearing the live oral arguments that are happening in the court um these leaks are shaking them because we're seeing a little bit more of what's actually happening on the inside and it's pure corruption just like any other political branch it's pure corruption yeah it's crazy and i i really i'm sick and tired of seeing these little anecdotes about how like yeah we might be on opposite ends of the spectrum politically but we're still civil with one another it's like yeah, like it's so ridiculous and like naive child like playing games with people's lives and i think it was george carlin who said it best like it's a big club and you are not in it Mm-mm. these powerful yep. people like however they portray like oh liberal this progressive that at the end of the day they have the same class interests they're in very comfortable positions for life they're not you know you can appreciate like certain actions that they may or may not do but you can't be under this illusion that these people are like these guys or heroes that are going to deliver you like you got to figure that out for yourself and like with other regular regular people because putting your faith in them it is not it someone we need to drag out into the light uh, a little bit more is Jeannie thomas um Tom- clarence thomas's wife she's oh an evil god. little she's evil we need to get her <laughs> oh my god yeah it's i yeah exactly what you're saying jasmine about like class interests i yeah, I I agree. Like, I don't think, I think people put too much faith into even like, I guess some of the, uh, well, yeah, the some of the Democratic like politicians, or who are you know like the ones who are saying that they're you know more progressive or whatever. But I feel like, again, like you're it once you I kind of see it happen even in just like corporations or in organizations like once you get to a certain point like in your career or something like you're in kind of like an inner circle type of mindset like you're really just thinking about like your your whole everything changes when you change like when your position change or like the amount of power that you have changes so like we can't really depend I don't think we should be depending on these people who are not really kind of living the day-to-day or kind of experiencing what's happening on a day-to-day because they're in this bubble. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I see that, like, in... I feel like that happens, like, just everywhere, like, in organizations especially, too. Like, I it's... Think, you, you yeah. get, and as people get older as well, like, there's a lot of bias or, like... I don't want to call it survivorship, but, but it's, like, if you're able to live up to a certain age, it's, like, a lot of people that are more progressive and radical or marginalized don't even make it to that point. So, like, that kind of disrupts your sample, like, as you go up in years and also with getting into these positions, like you're saying, Alyssa, like, in order for you to reach that height, you already have to be a certain type of person, who's willing to deal with a certain type of other person or like play certain games. So 
Yeah, it's just, it's so naive to me to be thinking that, like, that's who's going to deliver you from anything. Like, it's just, you can't just sit on your laurels and think that something is going to come down on high and be on your side. Because as we can see, that's not the case. The power that built them is not going to go away anytime soon. And it all needs reform. Relying on them is going to get us nowhere. Yeah, these lifetime appointments got to go. I mean... And we see, like, the Biden administration kind of, like, pushing the brakes on reforming the court. And it's like, they're not in this fight because it's empowering them, too. So we have a long way to go, people. Yeah. All right. And we're going to move on to our second musical break. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this song is Go by Santa Gold and Karen O. We'll be right back. social media accounts we have an instagram account and we also have a facebook account our facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, I'm going to be talking about um, the claim that Iran sentenced 15,000 protesters to death, which has been debunked. Uh, so at, before we get into that, I'm going to just read some background about the protests going on in Iran currently. Uh, this background information comes from Vogue. It was written by Emma Spector in October. Um, So the protests, they were triggered by the death of a young woman named Masa Amini, who also went by the name Gina. She was a 22-year-old woman from the western city of Sakez in Iran's Kurdistan province. Iranian morality police detained her outside a metro station in Tehran and took her into custody with witnesses claiming that she was beaten while being transported to a detention center. Amini died in an Iranian hospital after spending three days in a coma. Why was Amini detained by the morality police in Tehran? Officials have claimed that Amini was detained for breaking the Iranian law requiring women to cover their hair with a headscarf and their limbs with loose clothing. Iran's mandatory hijab law, which went into effect in 1981 after the country's Islamic revolution, is selectively and often arbitrarily enforced. 
and Amini's mother has claimed that her daughter was wearing a long, loose robe as required. Uh, so if you're interested, you can read um, the entire background in that Vogue article again by Emma Spector. Uh, and now I'm going to move on to the fact-checking article from Al Jazeera. Uh, this was written by Maziar Motamedi and published on November the 16th um, of this year. Fact check, has Iran sentenced 15,000 protesters to death? The Iranian judiciary has confirmed that five individuals have been sentenced to death in cases linked to the protests. Reports that the Iranian state has sentenced approximately 15,000 people to death for participating in the now two months of protests in the country have circulated widely on social media and in the news. First reported by Newsweek, they were so widespread that even Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, tweeted about the claim, saying, Canada denounces the Iranian regime's barbaric decision to impose the death penalty on nearly 15,000 protesters. The protesters in question have been on the streets nearly every day since the September 16th death in custody of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who was arrested by the country's morality police in Tehran for allegedly not complying with Iran's dress code for women. But Trudeau deleted the tweet and Newsweek corrected its story. Let's take a closer look. Is the 15,000 figure real? While thousands have been arrested in Iran and some have been sentenced to death, the numbers are nowhere near the 15,000 reported. The 15,000 figure is the number of people believed to have been arrested according to overseas-based human rights and media organizations. The same sources have reported that more than 350 protesters have been killed. Where did the 15,000 execution story come from? The news of the executions appear to have stemmed from a statement signed by 227 of Iran's 290 parliamentarians that said people engaging in Mohareba, so I was not able to find how to pronounce this correctly in Farsi, so I apologize, uh, but it is spelled in English, M-O-H-A-R-E-B-E-H, and that term means waging war against God should be dealt with decisively with a response that would teach an example. Along with corruption on earth, Moharebe is among the charges used by the Iranian judiciary that can carry the death penalty. Hence the apparent misreporting that led to the claims that 15,000 people had been sentenced to death. The statement was criticized online and some lawmakers tried to clarify their position by saying that they did not mean that all protesters should be executed. Days later, a document began circulating online that purportedly showed the names of 227 lawmakers on a letter that called on the judiciary to treat all those arrested in the protests as people engaging in moharebe or waging war against God. However, the letter appears to be fake as the list of lawmakers is old and includes former members of parliament. For instance, Ishan Kanduzi, listed in the letter, has been President Ibrahim Raisi's econ economy minister since August 2021. The Iranian judiciary also rejected the authenticity of the letter. How many people have been sentenced to death? 
The fact that the exaggerated reports have been debunked does not mean that no execution sentences have been handed out. On Sunday, the Iranian judiciary announced that the first death sentence has been handed down to an unnamed rioter who was charged with Moharebe, corruption on earth, and setting fire to a government center, disturbing public order, and collusion for committing crimes against national security. The judiciary also announced on Wednesday that four more individuals have received death sentences in connection with the protests. Two individuals were sentenced for using a knife in the street to cause fear and terror for the people, in addition to attacking others with the knife and arson. Another is accused of running over and killing a police officer with a car, while a fourth is accused of playing the role of a leader in street unrest and blocking the streets. Several other people, also unnamed, have received between five to ten years in prison for national security-related charges. The judiciary has said the rulings, which were issued in Tehran, are preliminary and will need to be approved by an appeals court to become final, after which details can be made public. Judiciary officials have said more than 1,000 indictments have been issued against quote-unquote rioters in Tehran, with many more in parts of the country. Um, So yeah, that was a long read. Um, And I would encourage you all to go to the Al Jazeera article that I mentioned. They have a lot of different links so you can read um, more detailed information that was mentioned in the article. Um, But I did see that erroneous claim on Instagram, like Viola Davis shared something. And I was like, wait a minute. So I had seen the Justin Trudeau one um, come around and I was like, oh, that's so... uh interesting like because it was coming out and it was like being retweeted by everybody like it was it seemed one site one sided source was coming out so i stopped and i was like it was very strange it was it was a strange thing to kind of come up it was weird it's like when i saw viola's ig post it was like a you know like an an image of a woman with the iranian flag and then it just had you know that figure of 15,000 protesters sentenced to death and then it was like a series of tweets from one person and then i wasn't really i did see the newsweek article about it but i didn't see a lot else so matthew you saw trudeau's tweet Alyssa, did you see anything about this i I didn't see anything about it, um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, Viola Davis was the the post that you saw, because I feel like a lot of times, I guess like celebrities where they're not running, I don't think they're running their own pages, um, they'll just post things or retweet things, and because of their status and follower, like it'll just kind of escalate and it's not like accurate information. It's like both the good and bad side of Twitter and how things travel. Yeah, and I feel like people are less likely to, well, not, I shouldn't say, not everyone, obviously, but I, I feel like for some things, if it's not happening near you or close to you or, you know, like you're not connected to it in any way, you're, I feel like you're sometimes less likely to kind of dig further and, you know, like to decide, like, oh, is this really, is this accurate information? Like, is this real? People don't always fact check 
um, or source check or uh, <laughs> read further. <laughs> they do not. <laughs> yeah, they don't. And it's really, I will say though that it is important to take a step back and see like if you can verify things. But I do feel like I did see some people being, um, they were just super quick to be like, oh, like you must not be smart if you would believe something like that would happen. And I don't think that that's the right lesson to take from it because no, like governments have executed people en masse. It happens. Like, it's not like that's something that's totally unbelievable. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like, I I don't, I'm not aware. I'm not always aware of, like, what's happening outside of the U.S., also inside of the U.S. So I always try to kind of take a step back. And especially on social media, like, I've, and I'm guilty of this. Like, I, I really sometimes don't read past the headline. Like, I'm just reading quick um headlines like on twitter or yeah so it's definitely something to i feel like we can all do is just kind of remind ourselves like you know like dig further or like if it if it does give you pause or if you have questions about there's so many things happening at any given time it's not possible for everyone to know and like thoroughly research all things but i definitely would caution people against sharing stuff that you're not really sure if it's true or not. It's like, because you just don't, you don't want to be amplifying something that's misinformation or disinformation. Because, you know, there's enough bad things that are happening right now in with the protests in Iran around um, Gina's death without, you know, amplifying something that's like a dubious claim. And it's it's really kind of embarrassing that like a head of state would like Trudeau would have shared something like that. I will say um, I have talked about this podcast before on the show. There's a podcast called Throughline by NPR. It's an NPR podcast. And one of the hosts, uh, Ramtin Arablui, is actually he is Iranian. Like he was born there and moved to the States as a young person. And I, they had a very good um, deep dive episode, like about the history of like protests in Iran related to like similar issues with the morality police. That I definitely think is worth listening to, and that that is like a, it's not a newspaper, but like that is a source that I trust as far as them like people who know the language, they know the history, they know the culture, and like they get people who really know what they're talking about to discuss these issues like beyond just like little snippets. So um, I would encourage people to give them a listen if you're interested, and I'm sure they'll have like some kind of follow up about what's going on. I think this is also the part where I'm going to miss Twitter the congregation of like experts and people who were very serious earnest people in their fields like you could turn to them quickly and be like if they're not amplifying this message like oh that might give me pause because i'm curious now as an expert in this field they would be saying something um so there's that aspect too yeah if the bird does go that's definitely something i'll miss because it it is true like as bad as social media can be with misinformation there are a lot of cases where like you wouldn't know what actually happened mm-hmm. if it weren't for people putting up clips and stuff of what the true story was. Yeah, cuz the news, I mean, I'm thinking about like people like my like my parents or like 
a lot of people who like they're they only watch the news like the mainstream news so they don't know like the context of things a lot of times or they're not hearing like directly from people who are in who are in those countries who are on the ground like the advocates or the activists um and even here like in the u.s so it i i will also miss that about twitter like i feel like i've i've learned a lot and learned a lot about what's actually like happening uh and and I feel like to some extent, because a lot of times you're getting it directly from the source, like you can trust, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're getting like the real information. Right. These protests still are going strong. Like I know some protesters uh, within the last 24 hours, they attacked um, Ayatollah Khomeini's childhood home. So, you know, the protests have been going on for a few months now, Um these people are being extremely brave um, to stand up against, you know, what's happening. So, you know, I hope for a good outcome eventually, like it's not going to be easy or quick, but, you know, sending solidarity out to the people protesting on the behalf of like the Iranian people. And uh, that's it for our show. So you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based radio and in the spirit of standing up for your rights this is the harder they come by jimmy cliff thanks for listening have a good rest of your week bye everyone bye everyone